I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome back to For Your Ears Only, episode 006. This is the show where each month we discuss one Bond film per month to the countdown of the impending release of Bond 25. I'm your intrepid host, Jake Tropila. Joining me today is my co-host, the dashing, the roguish, the incorrigible, Mr. Jack Eason. Jack, how you doing? uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not going to live up to any of those adjectives. Well, I just tried to apply some Bond terms to you. You know, boost your... Those, those are good. Those are very fond Bond terms. In this Me Too generation, there are other uh, terms that can be applied to James Bond that are less <laughs> fond. No, I think I think incorrigible covers everything you need to know. Incorrigible, yes. yes. Um, roguish, mischievous scamp. Yes, exactly. So here we are back. We had a bit of an irregular episode last time with uh, the unofficial Bond entry Casino Royale. Our pal Sean Glynis was kind enough to join us for that one. Uh, But we're back to the fold, as they say, with 1967's You Only Live Twice, the film that broke Sean Connery. So, uh, Jack, let me ask you, had you ever seen this film before? You know that's that's a really good question. I know I've seen sections of it before, mm-hmm. but I'm when it opened and it has that that well not quite the opening sequence, but uh, a little bit early on when they have the spaceship stealing the other spaceship. Yeah, and is is does that happen later? Does that happen in Moonraker as well, or one of the <laughs> like I I feel like that's a thing I've seen before, but not in that movie. And I know I've seen some like I've seen yellow-faced Sean Connery and things before. Uh, so I know I have seen portions of this film before, but that spaceship thing really threw me off. I don't know if I've ever... That makes me doubt if there's another James Bond movie I haven't seen. <laughs> I'm so glad you noticed this. So this film is uh, directed by Lewis Gilbert. He would go on to direct two other films, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. And this film and those two films all have the exact same intro, wherein a giant vessel stolen for the purposes of causing nu- nuclear Armageddon. So Whoa. your your eyes and ears do not deceive you. That You have probably seen this before. I, l- I like that because I've looked through um, Lewis Gilbert, the director's filmography, and he's, he got, he's got a pretty good cache of, like, English cult films, like Educating Rita, which is, you know, a very famous adaptation of a very famous play, and Shirley Valentine, which is kind of a nice... British drama, comedy drama, which is notable mm-hmm. to me as one of the first things my parents ever recorded when they bought a, v- bought a VCR, and when one of the first times I remember my parents lying to me because I asked them what a hooker was, because that came up while we were watching that movie, <laughs> and, they li- and they lied to me and told me that a hooker is someone who lends people money, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why that was so bad. But anyhow, Lewis Gilbert was of behind course. that, and, and, these, and Alfie, again, another 60s kind of classic, or was... Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, it was 60s. Uh, and Michael none of these, yeah, None of these involve large vessels... Kind of engulfing smaller vessels, so I guess he got all of that out in his James Bond movies. Yeah, it's a good man for the job uh, when it comes to that sort of film. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what you need. Yeah, so this this film you may have also seen um, in many forms because I'd say You Only Live Twice is iconic for many reasons. 
Um, one, uh, my big takeaway now every time I watch it is that this is the film that the Austin Powers series has borrowed the most from, right down to the uh, the, the volcanic layer and the appearance of Blofeld uh, with the scar over the eye. So it has a lot of that going on for it. And uh, it's also, I think, the first real epic James Bond film because the films have been sorely uh, expanding their scope as they've gone along. And now here we have a giant plot to and uh, a scheme to basically cause nuclear Armageddon and then uh, for the purpose of profit, I guess. I don't know. It's all. It's a little yeah, fuzzy to me. Yeah, that that was an that's an interesting plot line. Um, I, I guess there's kind of an inference that may, it's some other Asian country. I guess we probably guess China. Maybe yeah. is trying to is trying to use Spectre to play off the U.S. and Russia against each other for to, to enact nuclear Armageddon. And Blofeld is looking for like a hundred million dollars worth of gold. And I'm just curious as to who really is going to live well. I mean, you can have $100 million of gold, but in a post-nuclear world, I'm not really sure how good the living's going to be. So it's, yeah, it's, really it's a bit have. of a weird weird plot. Uh, I'm not sure they really thought that one through. through. Yeah, they'll all emerge and uh, everybody will die from radiation poisoning. It'll be fun. It'll be great to have yeah. all that gold to hug while you're dying slowly. Yeah. So, and then I also mentioned at the top of the show, this is the film that broke Sean Connery. Um amazing after only five years uh he finally got tired of playing 007 and it was namely uh just a side note this is probably the one of two films i would say in the series that you could describe by its location in this one it's james bond goes to japan the other one is uh, moonraker which is james bond goes to outer space but mm-hmm. they filmed much of the film in japan and connery was uh, harassed by japanese paparazzi they would follow him in the restrooms, they would shove the camera over the restroom stalls while he's trying to drop a deuce. It was not a good time for him, and he was very, uh, very cold and wouldn't speak to the producers on set. So they'd gone from having a great working relationship to this was basically the end of it, and he um, swore to never come back after this movie. So as far as people were concerned, this was the last film that Connery would do as James Bond at the time. It makes yeah, and it makes it. I mean, it was a it, five years, but a busy five years. I mean, this is the oh, yeah. this is the fifth official uh, James Bond film. So yeah, they got their money's worth, if nothing else. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, money well spent, but uh, at what cost? They say. Uh, anyways, let's uh, let's dive into this. So as you mentioned, this film starts off with a sequence uh, which uh, looks spectacular by today's standards, given the effects of the time. We get to see a spaceship hijack another spaceship mid-orbit. Um, film 1967 predates 2001: A Space Odyssey by one year. Uh, what, what are some of your thoughts about this? Uh, this pretty, I think it's a pretty cool opening we have here. It is. It's. It's definitely catches attention, and like you say, this really. It really captures the scale of this movie. I got to say, like as we go through, I really enjoyed this movie, and and like it opens with in space with yeah. high jinks and piratry and pirating in space. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's this is a long cry from Doctor No, and where he just rents a boat to go to an island, and they have a dragon that's actually just a truck. Uh, yeah. This is um, <laughs> things. Things have moved along quite a bit at this juncture. Yeah, so it opens up with this. You know, and, and it is—it's a really great little sequence, and and it do, it reminded me of two thousand and one because it's using that kind of small models and overlay effects to very, very good effect. It looks great. It it really has has aged very gracefully as these things go. 
Yeah, and Jack, you mentioned you really enjoyed this film. You actually shared what I would consider a hot take uh, off mic, and that you uh, enjoyed this more than Goldfinger. Yeah, this this is a and this is something I'm still weighing it up because I I have a couple of like antagonistic opinions about James Bond that are formulating. First off, I think is that From Russia with Love is probably intellectually the best James Bond movie. It's the best plotted. It has the most interesting ingredients. Yeah. But then Goldfinger is I just I can't argue with Goldfinger is just more fun than From Russia with Love and more entertaining. And then I swear this one's almost more fun again. I don't know. It's like it's, it's it just feels so James Bond-esque, you know? And they yeah. say Austin Powers borrowed so much from this one. There's a reason because this really does cement down you know, where, where Goldfinger cemented a lot of them, um, you know, kind of in places like, oh, we have the bad guy and the henchman, and we have, you know, a lavish surroundings and stuff. This just ratchets it up with so much more of the, you know, of the established elements, but with these really, a sense of scale and pomp that has been really not present. Thunderball had a very technical element with all the underwater sequences. Yeah. But this this really is just out and out, like, special effects, gadgetry absurd elements you know and it really it's just it's so much fun and I I can concede that definitely this film has flaws I mean um, it doesn't have a good henchman Blofeld is I mean what we get the big reveal he's not exactly like a really terrifying excuse me bad guy in within the context of the film no but there's just so much else going on and the, uh, the action sequences are great I think this is by far and away the best straight up action film in the in the Bond series thus far. Um the early sequences have some superb choreography and use of camera work to, to really give a sense of kind of speed and, and movement. Yeah, there's there's one sequence in particular that I think is uh, the highlight in the entire series for me. Uh we'll, yeah. get, we'll get to that. But um yeah I agree. Uh this film uh definitely recognizes that spectacle is king. And and it does it throws everything into the mix to make uh, one of the most visually stunning, best use of uh, locations and resources. Uh, this is truly an epic Bond film where it almost Bond almost becomes too big for his britches. That it's a it's a pattern you'll see with each Bond actor. There's always a sort of a like the first film is very like a very quiet and subdued film compared to what happens in the later films, and it always balloons to these extreme lengths. So you'll see with uh, our next film is On Her Majesty's Secret Service, there is a much more, it's a much more grounded effort compared to the, the <laughs> zaniness of You Only Live Twice. I mean, after Outer Space, you could only come down again, Ex- really. It's about, it's about as far as we can go. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> but it wouldn't be the last time we go to space. Thank you, James Bond, for oh. bringing us to all these places. That's right, uh, and you can partially thank Star Wars for bringing Bond into space, but uh, more on that in this, several months. That That is true, yes, as Bond is the, the, ever the chameleon. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting to talk about like, the scale, because one thing that's interesting to me about this film is it's actually, it's got a couple of sequences shot in other places, but it's actually predominantly in Japan. Almost a whole film takes place oh, yeah. in one place, which is kind of interesting. It doesn't have that globe hopping like from Russia with Love or, or Thunderball where it has like a very ostentatious 
we're going to another country because we can afford to. Uh, this is all just in Japan, and of course, it's in the most spectacular parts of Japan. It looks the the country looks phenomenal. They've got all these incredible uh, buildings and vistas that they've exactly yeah. consciously sought out for everything. But um, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting in that way in that it, it's very almost kind of a more unified location than the other ones. But then everything about the storyline is I mean to the fact that this is a movie with a secret volcanic base yeah. uh, everything everything else about it is of, so, of course absurd yeah so alright going back to the opening uh, space capsule steals another space capsule nobody knows who did it it was an American vessel that was stolen they're blaming the Russians Great Britain is acting as sort of a mediator between the two countries uh, I did really enjoy that, actually, the way that Britain sits between the two and is kind of, like, smarmy about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel I feel that really, in this Brexit era, really plays towards uh, Britain's sense of, of empire as being like, you know, don't worry, chaps, we'll sort it out. And it's like, no one really cares what Britain thinks on a world scale. Like, in that, like if the US and Russia have an argument, Britain's not in the middle, you know, really doing much. Yeah. Uh, but, but good on them. <laughs> good yeah. effort. And uh, have no fear. Britain, as they always say, have their best man on the case. Cut to James Bond is in bed with a woman somewhere, most likely. And in this case, he is. He's in Hong Kong, betting a Chinese agent. And just before they get it on, his Murphy bed folds up into the wall. Agents storm in, shoot the bed, and then British soldiers arrive on the scene and pronounce James Bond dead. Then we get into our opening title sequence. Now, before I uh, get to the song, I think this is a very sort of... The entire first... um, What am I saying? The entire pre-title sequence works really well. It sets up... there's There's this scheme going on. Nobody knows what's happening. And James Bond is possibly dead. Now, I can only imagine 1967 audiences <laughs> losing their shit after what they just saw, because we're only five minutes into the film, and and their world has been rocked. And especially 1967 was also the year Casino Royale, the, the spin-off one came, where they already had the deaths of several James Bond, yeah. and James yeah. Bond being interchangeable, uh, there being multiple James Bonds. So I feel like, muddy the water, this is like, are, are they actually going to replace Connery? on screen who knows oh god i hope i hope nobody back then saw the the 67 casino royale and thought oh is this canon what's going to happen with connery it's a, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know which one came out first honestly but no i can't imagine anyone saw casino royale and thought casino the, did i think by a few months the, the, yeah, yeah okay so i can't imagine anyone sat through that and thought yeah they'll probably take some ideas from this so i feel like no one no one would borrow anything from that film and honestly should have thrown back whatever they had in the first place. All right, so Bond is dead, so we think. We go to the opening title credits and we hear this. Isn't that nice? It's definitely a good one. It's iconic for sure. It is, and it's a uh, it's a really considering the film that it takes place in after the the bombastic heights of Goldfinger and Thunderball. This is a very much more down to earth effort for James Bond. It's a very gentle tune. Nancy Sinatra is not overselling it, but I it, it's a I think it's a beautiful love ballad to the, our our 007. It's really good, yeah. Um, and it, apparently, apparently, Frank Sinatra passed. I don't know if he passed on that song specifically. Presumably, just passed on the opportunity to sing uh, the you know the Bond theme. 
But yeah, it's it's really I really think that this is a great theme. It's definitely one of I think the top tier Bond theme tunes. Mm. My only issue, perhaps, with it was some of the orchestration throughout this. And John Barry, the regular uh, composer, worked on this one. Yeah. Is um is just that there's this tendency to put in this awkward kind of what what sounds now very dated. I guess it was very much of its time, little Oriental esque, yeah, string it elements. Has, it has that flavor. Yeah, and I mean, and it, it plays into. I mean, obviously, this whole film has a very strong uh, Asian exotic vibe, uh, which is again very much of its time. So it just, I, I think it works well within the film. But it is when you hear it now, it's a little bit like, oh yeah, we're we're definitely in the sixties, seventies here. This is this is still a time when it was pretty normal to kind of portray other cultures as just being a bit very like having like three significant attributes and otherwise being basically alien to normal Western folk. Yeah. And uh, and Nancy Sinatra, she was very nervous about doing this song. It took her about 25 takes to get through the whole thing. And this final version we're hearing is just stitched together pieces from all of those takes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's daunting to have to do a Bond theme. But, uh, it's true. Yeah. I mean, she, well, she follow up, you have to follow up Shirley Bassey, I mean, and Tom Jones after that. It's, it was getting high stakes. Here. Yeah. And, yeah, and then it just became... Uh, a period of all right. Let's get the best person to sing the theme. Uh, all right. So uh, after our pre-title sequence, uh, we cut to James Bond is given a funeral, military a uh, military funeral. He's dumped at sea, uh, but his corpse. I think officially that's buried at sea. Buried at sea. <laughs> dumped at dumped sea. At sea. <laughs> I believe Osama bin Laden was dumped at sea. He was dumped at sea for sure. This is this was a burial at James sea. James Bond is buried at sea. There's even just so we're just in case audiences are not sure. There's even a newspaper that says uh, British Secret Service agent killed. Um, but uh, his body is taking onto a submarine where it's zipped open and reveal that oh James Bond is alive and well after all, and uh, his death is a ruse to throw Spectre off of his trail, which I think is a really nice touch. For sure, and, yeah. and it's worth noting, I think, at this point, actually, uh, Roald Dahl was uh, oh, orchestrated yes. a lot of these elements, he, and uh, he was the writer of this film, which I'd actually kind of, it's something I knew and then forgot, so when his credit popped up, I was like, Roald Dahl? Yeah. So, yeah, he, he, he wrote this and apparently really kind of wrote it from the ground up, but there's not a lot from the book in this, so uh, all, I don't know if the James Bond dying was in the original novel. Um, do you recall... Uh, well, this is um, th- this is like the last full-length novel that uh, Ian Fleming wrote, and this in this novel he actually hunts down and kills uh, Blofeld. But this is after he loses his memory for a short period of time and believes he's a fisherman and lives in Japan, where he's married to a woman named Kissy Suzuki. So a lot of those elements are borrowed uh, for the right, f- so for the film. Bar if you, I can see what he deviated from that whole yeah. James. That's a very Twin Peaks return element there. Yeah, Dougie uh, Jones, Dougie Jones, Jamesy Bond, uh, <laughs> Jimmy Bond, hanging out, hang, hanging out in Japan on his fishing boat. <laughs> yes. So uh, Bond is uh, called into duty. Uh, he's on a submarine, and this is one of many running gags where every time Bond visits a new location and he has to see M and Muddy Penny. They have an office set up in that location. So he's on a submarine. Money Penny has an office in the submarine, and then M has his <laughs> office decked out in a submarine, which I can only assume is a military vessel that is probably best suited for more important features other than a nice office with wood paneling doors and such. 
definitely my feeling on submarines from my limited knowledge is they're probably not going to designate some dude to get like a bureaucrat to get a large <laughs> office on one and his secretary and, uh, to get a separate large office and one I don't think yeah and one where yeah. he's not going to be at all the time like it's just the yeah, visiting yeah. Japan office yeah, like in, in other times they just load torpedoes in there or something, just hang <laughs> down, whatever. It's the me- it's probably the mess hall. No one got to eat on that mission. Yeah. Just M got his office and everyone else had to starve. Yeah, so Bond gets uh, the mission. He has to find the missing vessel. Um, he goes to Japan. Before he goes, uh, Money Penny offers him a book of instant Japanese, but uh, he reminds her that he took a first in Oriental languages at Oxford. Which is really useful, because yeah. there's a lot of languages in the Orient, as it's called yeah. back then. So I'm, <laughs> and, I'm not really sure how that works. And Bond does not speak Japanese once in the movie, which also helps as well. It does. In fact, yeah, there, there's certain scenes where people speak Japanese loudly near him, mm-hmm. and one would imagine there's probably pertinent information that he's not privy to, so he maybe should have taken the damn book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's it's no Japanese. helping him. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he goes to Japan, he meets with his contact, a guy named uh, Henderson, and forgive me if I'm skipping around a bit, but uh, he meets Henderson, is played by Charles Gray, who would actually go on to play Blofeld in a later installment, interestingly enough, but the characters, That's have, right. the characters have no relation. Uh, he's killed through a knife through the paper-thin walls, Bond runs out, hunts down the attacker, beats him to death, dons his gear, and then gets in the man's getaway car, and this is a part of the film I really like, because this essentially allows Bond to uh, infiltrate the office that sent the killer, but also the guy, the chauffeur who's with the killer, he doesn't recognize that his ostensibly a five foot eight Asian man has now turned into a six foot one Scotsman who weighs it's, over it's 200 power of, Yeah, it's a power of belief. He puts on that little uh, face mask... Um, and just pulls the brim of his hat down low, and yeah. s- suddenly, suddenly, who could tell? Yeah. You know, it's amazing, and I, and he just kind of grunts, and the guy just, yeah, he takes it at face value, and Bond piles into the car and pretends to be injured, and and yeah, he drags him upstairs and everything. It's, he it's throws a, him over his shoulder, his shoulder. and he <laughs> takes an elevator ride up to the office. Yeah, he must have thought the guy just ate a lot before going on that mission. He probably thought he had, like, a stitch or a cramp from running away after assassinating him because he, like, ate just a ton of food beforehand. (laughs) It's probably a very reasonable thing, and he's like, this dude is such an idiot. I'm dragging his ass upstairs again. Yeah, so he realizes that Bond is an imposter, and we get a a pretty underrated fight sequence between the two of them. Oh, for sure. Kind of akin to the, uh, the train fight in From Rush With Love. Uh, my my thoughts exactly, yes. Bond, like, straight up picks up a couch and starts using it as a battering ram against this guy who's built like a like a, a pro wrestler, not like odd job. And it's a pretty, pretty gritty, tough fight, and all the punches yeah. are brutal. For, for sure. And this is one of the reasons why I kind of like this This one's vying with, uh, with Goldfinger for me is because it's got that level of kind of just, just notching it out, just a little level beyond you know, kind of into the outrageous, just dipping its toe into the outrageous, just enough to make you really excited to see what it's going to do next. But then that fight alone is better than any action sequence in, in Goldfinger, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think the the fight between Oddjob and, and Connery in, in Goldfinger is honestly a little bit stilted, a little stagey. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have a momentum to it. Certainly Red Grant and Bond's fight in For Mercer With Love is a much better... Um, 
kind of a much better comparison point. That's a much tighter kind of kinetic fight sequence. And it really, they say, it's it's just a really punchy fight sequence. It's got a real sense of impact to it. Uh, they're really throwing each other all over the place. I'm yeah. sure stunt doubles were used extensively for Connery in this point, but I mean... Yeah, it's 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 a it's a good one for sure. Um, guy regretted dragging his ass upstairs. I reckon he got yeah thrown all over the place. Yeah, they're throwing furniture. A, a sword comes into the play. Uh, Bond takes him out with a statue. It's great. This is actually, that's right, and it's a really nice office too. It's got a really oh, nice yeah. '60s design. I like it. It's it's you know some of that, that retro stuff you look at and you're like, oh, that's awful. But honestly, that's a nice. Nice, nice combination of wood and padding and and mod like like chrome yeah. tubing and stuff. Very, very nice. Uh, you know, it's got I like take some pointers from this one. Yeah, it's got like those sort of the those deep seat chairs where you just kind of uh, roll your back into, and it's got a nice a nice looking bonsai tree growing in the middle of the office. It's pretty, pretty, yeah, yeah. pretty great set. Pretty nice, and I'm definitely jealous of the bar. They, you can open this wall panel, and of course oh. Bond finds it to stow a body in. But that that <laughs> right. bar is very nice. <laughs> Yeah, but Bond, don't need the body in it. Bond throws the guy, uh, the body, into the wet bar, and then he immediately uncorks a drink, sips it, and then is disgusted at Siamese vodka. <laughs> That's, there's so much. There's so much of Bond's superior attitudes towards alcohol in this film. There's, there's a couple of. He's a very seasoned drinker in this, mm-hmm. and he, yes, he's. I, I've uh, actually this prompted a discussion as watching it with my wife, and I, I was honestly, I don't know what the definition is of vodka. I don't know, you know, vodka. Distilled with potatoes or whatever, so I mean I don't even know if Siamese vodka is a thing or if it will be the same as Russian vodka or what. So um, yeah, I have no idea, but obviously it's not what Bond is looking for. No, definitely not, especially not after a fight like that. Um, because obviously the Siamese could never hope to make a fine liqueur. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, moving forward, Bond uh, meets his contact Tiger Tanaka at a uh, sumo match. So we get a little little bit of that action going on. Uh, Tiger <laughs> Tiger takes him onto his train where he's got an office kind of like M, and then they go back to Tiger Tanaka's house where they have a very uh, homoerotically charged sequence wherein <laughs> they're bathed and massaged next to each other while they're discussing the mission. Uh, Just another night out with the boys. You, you at this point, it's worth mentioning one of my favorite things in the run up to the, his first meeting with Tanaka is the fact that he's lured over a, a collapsible. Uh, kind of slide that slides him into the office but it's in this like in a tunnel general like in this big wide transit tunnel and yeah. Bond is lured in there and fall and the floor gives way and he slides down into his office and it's like I cannot fathom how much use there would actually be for such contraption <laughs> that they designed this whole thing in a fake tunnel with a fake floor and it slides down into his office and like how do you, does there's this door to the office does Tanaka use that to get to work every day because that would be kind of fun but I don't know how he got the budget for it that, that may be true but it actually seems very practical if you compare it to the bridge that Blofeld has over his piranha tank in the volcano lair. <laughs> like this you, is true. You but have to walk across the bridge and he'll dump you in if, you, if he's... <laughs> well, yeah, uh, and, and that's, a, that's a fair point, but Blofeld is an insane genius it's true. or something to that. So I feel Tanaka's surely Japanese Secret Service. This is this is taxpayer money. That's true. That's going into this. So honestly, it's lavishness. Um, disgraceful. Terrible. Yeah, so um, Bond and Tanaka, they're bathed next to each other in these nice baths. They each have about four women sponging them. 
Tanaka says, uh, in Japan, men come first and women come second, um, which is <laughs> nothing I really have a problem with. I don't know how you feel about it. <laughs> no, no, that seems right to me. That seems totally in order. I can't imagine anyone would argue. No, this is this is 1967. Everything is fine. And um, and then uh, oh, oh, also this is the scene where you mentioned uh, Bonds about the vodka. This is the scene where he also gets a uh, some sake, and he says that sake's perfect if it's at the right temperature, 98.4 degrees, which he somehow was able to tell with his tongue. With yeah, well, he's he's just good. Yeah, no, I, I, this is a weird one to be, because firstly, it's in Fahrenheit, and I'm, I don't think British people or Japanese, I don't, maybe the Japanese is Fahrenheit, maybe, I don't know, it seems a little bit unusual, and then secondly, I'm just, uh, well, as soon as he said that, I was thinking, how many assholes in 1967 saw this movie, and then just ruined a good night out with their friends at a Japanese restaurant by claiming they know about Saki, like that's just all I feel like is that's <laughs> bunch of people like oh ninety eight point four and they're like really bringing it. It's like oh it's too cold, it's too warm. While Japanese people are like what what is wrong with you? Yeah, that's what I imagine. I just feel these films have a large knock on effect of, of just giving people stupid ideas because I have no idea what the correct temperature for serving sake is, and I imagine there's a fair amount of uh, leeway either side of that. To be honest, yeah, Bond's just a he's a smug and pretentious prick when it comes to food and drink as as you'll he, see he really is but at the same time we'll never forget poor old red grant giving himself away by ordering what white wine with or red wine red with, wine fish. with fish yeah that's which to be honest with you, i don't know a lot about wine and food but even i wouldn't do that one so to be honest grant is no one to blame but himself for that but so be it mm-hmm. i guess it pays to it, it lets us know it, it pays to pay attention to to these things yeah, so, um, alright, uh, Bond goes back to that office where he had the first fight scene to go undercover and discover what their business is. He meets Helga Brandt, the gorgeous redhead who's working for Spectre. Uh, they discover that he's a secret agent, though, because the desk that, of uh, the guy he's interviewing him has a, uh, uh an x-ray <clears throat> machine on yeah, it, I, and you can see his gun I, in the pocket. Yeah, I have a feeling watching that that uh, Mr. Osato, the the guy who runs that company in his it, office, yeah. has that. Yeah, I think it's Osato. Uh, I, I imagine that he people he have, has business uh, meetings with in that office. They must have a very high cancer rate compared to the national average. It's just getting yeah. bombarded with X-rays unknowingly. Well, uh, pretty cruel. Yeah, and there's a, well, there's a reason they're like sitting 15 feet away from each other at the desk because they don't get affected by the, uh, yeah. the radiation. Yeah, I feel, I feel like Osato and, and uh, Helga should have should have like both slipped on like uh, slipped on lead plated jackets uh, before sitting down and just claimed it was a Japanese custom. Right. So Bond's cover is blown. They opt to kill Bond. Bond escapes with the help of uh, one of Tiger Tanaka's top agents named Aki who becomes one of the two Bond girls in the film. And uh, they are able to escape with the help of a helicopter that has a giant magnet on it, um, <laughs> which uh, is amazing every time I watch and, it. Not And not just, like, I mean, that's a ridi- like, of all the ways to dispatch a, a car with four gunmen in it. Because, interestingly note, this film does not have a tricked-out car. We do not have a tricked-out Aston Martin. No. Aki drives... Aki drives around this really, really nice classic Toyota Roadster. It's a really nice little car. It Probably is. a death trap, but whatever. That's old cars in general. But uh, yeah, it's super nice. But it doesn't have any. There's, it doesn't do anything. It just drives like a car, which is very disappointing. Um, one of one of the the more uh, grounded elements of this film is that cars are just cars in this film. 
Um, but yeah, they so so they're getting chased by this car with four gunmen in it. So they just uh, have a helicopter show up with a giant magnet <laughs> that just picks it up, uh, which is a very very useful solution, and drops it in the ocean. Just drops it in the ocean. That's just just, just happens. Brilliant. And what I really what I really love about it though is that James Bond is able to watch the helicopter carry the car away and drop it oh, yeah. via cam a series of edited camera shots on the dashboard of the car. I guess the car does have a video set up in it, which is. I guess that's outlandish. That's so tame by James Bond standards. It didn't even occur to me that that was outlandish. But yeah, it's like uh, on on the dashboard, he's able to watch it because he's able to talk Tiger Tanaka, who then likes broadcasting this edited sequence of different camera (laughs) angles, charting the helicopter with cars journeying out to the ocean and the dropping of the car. I was like, and that's not, and that, and later on in space, they have a similar sequence where they have like this this edited series of cameras, like yeah. some external far off points. It's like, who has these cameras floating out in the ether, just able to pick stuff up? It's a. That's, I, I only wish reality could ever be so cinematic. Yeah, that's that's one thing that, as as much as I love this movie, that's one thing that always <laughs> takes me out of it too. Because when also when Bond goes down that elaborate slide into Tiger Tanaka's office. They say, oh, we've been watching you, Mr. Bond, and they play video footage of Bond. But they're just showing footage of You Only Live Twice on the TV. <laughs> and it's, it's always yeah. like, yeah, just they watch the movie. Like, the best other example I can think of is uh, in in Star Trek, The Search for Spock, um, Kirk blows up the Enterprise. And at the beginning of the next film, they uh, there's like this trial for Kirk's actions and then they just basically replayed the ending to the search for Spock where they watch all the same camera angles of the Enterprise exploding. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, I, of course, I, yeah, I of course think of Spaceballs, which did similar right. thing. <laughs> it's like, oh, we, we need to, we need to see where they are and they fast forward the film all the way up to where the film is and, uh, Right, I mean, why not? The, the technology exists in the future, and James yeah. Bond is all about it. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it plays into uh, Japan as, as a, a nation of such technological genius mm-hmm. that apparently everything is captured in cinematic glory, in widescreen and everything. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. So, um, Bond uh, and Aki investigate a... Uh, well, they have a... Tiger Tanaka has this photo of a boat that has been seen near this volcano... So they go to the uh, dock to investigate the boat, and they find these uh, tanks of liquid nitrogen. So something is going down there. Uh, this leads to a full-on assault where all the dock workers chase James Bond, and uh, this leads to a very impressing, excuse me, impressive set piece where, uh, with one long helicopter tracking shot, Bond runs across a rooftop, evading and beating up all of these thugs. Uh, what was your thought on that shot? That again, this this brings back. Why why am I so uh, charmed with this film over you know say Goldfinger and Goldfinger's really for me the standard bear. There's there's nothing like that in Goldfinger. That's such a great shot yeah. and it just kind of opens up the whole thing. This real spectacular multifaceted action sequence. It's it gives you a sense of continuity between his his fighting partners and so on. It's just a really great touch and it's not like it's uh, you know. A massively complex thing to do. It's expensive, obviously. It takes a little bit of extra planning, but it just really enlivens what would otherwise just be another kind of, 
you know, run, you know, kind of throw a couple of stuntmen, have them do stunt falls. You know, it, it kind of changes that choreography, which is really all it still is. It's still pretty standard choreography-wise, but when you have the camera pull back up like that to give you this spectacular single shot, it really it really ties it together and makes it something much more impressive. Yeah. And that's what I think is really invested in this film. This film has... Um, I feel like Thunderball had that sense of cinematic to it too, but it was bogged down in kind of a technocrat kind of concept of what was really good. Yeah. And we discussed that in Thunderball, that the underwater sequences are techni- technically very demanding, impressive sequences, but they don't really translate into thrilling action. This film kind of picks up on that, but translates it much better into a genuine spectacle for the audience. And it really you know, kind of adds to it to a point where I think this film has all of the kind of good parts of Goldfinger and then on top of that just adds in this just a little extra bit of oomph on the action sequences and that definitely that and the office sequence are really you know kind of I think key takeaways of that they're really great examples of how to just do action well just generally yeah there's a lot of uh, I'll say there's some people that don't like this movie but um, in many ways the film is uh, as much as I warmed up to Thunderball this go around uh, in many ways, You Only Live Twice improves on Thunderball. I mean, for one, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's, ti- it's a much tighter pacing, and it runs about 15 minutes shorter. And, and yeah, just the, the audacity of this shot. Uh, I mean, when I like went, went back and revisited all the films about six or seven years ago with a more critical eye, the, like, the first time seeing that helicopter shot, it like blew my mind that they attempted to do something like that back in, back in the 60s. And, and I, I never tire of seeing that. I, I occasionally, I'll just pop onto YouTube just to watch that sequence because uh, it, it just it looks so goddamn good and beautiful. Yeah. And, and it's, it just shows it's just that extra level of, of cinematic flair. Just to, like I say, it's the, the choreography on the ground is it's a little more demanding because it's a one take shot. It has mm-hmm. to all be done together. But I mean, really, it's just Bond kind of running through and grappling with stuntmen and kind of making a motion and the stuntmen doing a, a flip to one side or the other as, as Bond bests them. Yeah. It's not like, it's not groundbreaking anything in terms of the choreography, but the cinema's eye on the choreography completely transforms it. And that's what's invested there, which really elevates the whole sense of it. And again, it's, it's got the docks. I'm, I can't read it's a Kobe docks, I think in, Kobe in Dock, Japan yeah. to shoot it. So it's like this, it just is a massive sprawling architecture of industry that's, that's out there. It's just a really, you know, it, it kind of, it really uses its locations very, very well. I think it maybe uses its locations a little better than previous Bond films as well. Yeah. It, although, although it still absolutely caters to, you know, what are three stereotypical things we know about Japan? Uh, yeah. Sumo wrestling, yeah. uh, hot baths, uh, ninjas. Although, why would you not ninjas. go to the ninjas? But at the same time, you know, it, it still falls into that trap, but it really... It really there's a real sense of an environment to this, which is not present in say Kentucky in Coldfinger, which really is like a KFC sign they stuck up somewhere <laughs> like it, and it's shot in Kentucky. It is it is accurate, but there's no real sense of the place particularly, um, and even Turkey in From Russia with Love, and um, they you know they have the shots of basilicas and and things like that like. 
are nice, but it doesn't really have a sense of on the ground the place so much. It's a yeah. little better, I think, than that. But but this one really has a great sense of the street and the space of Japan, yeah. even if it is very much clearly a Westerner's exoticized account of that. It's it's still it's still uh, what I like about it and appreciate about it is the fact that Bond spends the money to go to these places so even though it's an exoticized I mean the back alleys of the, the different little alleys they walk through through you know it looks it looks very similar to something you would see in a, in a Narusa film or an Ozu film of the time or a Fukusaku film you know it's, it's like oh yeah because it is because it is actually what they look like it's they, they went there yeah. so even the exoticism is toned down by the fact that they relied on actual Japanese locations and they worked heavily with Toho Toho Studios provided a lot of when they shot on sets in Japan Toho provided those sets and provided the actors and and things like that so you know there was a genuine connection as much as we might complain about Bond and his his uh kind of uh, not very pleasant views of other cultures and so on there's certainly a stuntedness there and the productions did certainly you know lean heavily on the resources that japan was able to offer them with their own film industry and yeah it works really well it's and, and that's why i think this film yeah. really has a great sense of place and spectacle that comes from that yeah and and it's it's also like the the with the, the producers, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, you know, they have the opportunity to film in Japan. They're not just going to just, they're going to say, hey, let's show the world Japan. Let's, you know, film a ninja camp sequence with these beautiful <laughs> centuries-old castles in the background. It's it's gorgeous. And one final thing I'd like to add about the helicopter is that John Barry's score really is remarkable over this sequence. I'm going to play just a little little sample it's got it it's got kind of like the bond film or the bond theme thrown in with uh nancy sinatra's theme and then when the trumpets come in ah that is that is just just (laughs) just just that with an aerial tracking shot you've you've made my day yeah all right it works the ingredients here are good for sure i think that's the real takeaway here yeah exactly um Bond, so after that stunning sequence, Bond is, funnily enough, he's captured just with a club to the back of the head. <laughs> he, this, I, I actually took a note of that, that honestly, Bond really needs to, like, watch his six in yeah. this. Uh, he keeps he keeps doing, you know, incredible super agent things, and then Aki saves him because some dude just leans out with a gun at one point, and she's just got to shoot him in the back because Bond is standing there oblivious, and she gets him, and then he gets clubbed in the back because he just doesn't notice some other dude. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel I feel like he's missing the elementary stuff here. He can do all the crazy, you know, super agent hijinks, uh, but just you know, look over your shoulder a little bit, pay attention, be aware. Yeah, Bond. Uh, so Bond's captured uh, by Helga Brandt, um, but through him just being Bond, he manages to convince her to release him so that they have sex. And she takes him up on a plane ride, where she traps him on the plane with a wooden board that just. <laughs> opens across his lap. And then I she, wonder where that wooden board came from. Yeah. yeah, it's like the width of the cockpit, but it comes in from the side <laughs> of the cockpit. Is there like just a wooden board hanging out of the plane when it's not in use? Yeah, I would, did Bond not wonder what that was when he was getting on there? Yeah. Who knows? Bond is Bond lands the plane, he gets away fine. Um, and then he calls for uh, little Nelly and her father, which is a microcopter and Q. We get a great Q sequence where Q flies into Japan with a team of uh, with a team of uh, Q lab workers, and they construct 
the the gyrocopter, Little Nelly, and then Bond takes off in that. And Little Little Nelly is uh, Bond doesn't have a nice car in the movie, but he's got a he's got a gyrocopter, which I think is in all of the posters for the film. It, that's definitely. I mean, that's like the jetpack in Thunderball. That's yeah. just sort of like it's not something everyone owns, and it's kind of dangerous and kind of ridiculous. But you know, some someone's it does exist, so why not use it? Yeah, and that that first shot of uh, Little Nelly taking off on the runway, where they practically did it, that was that's a very nice looking shot too, with the beautiful Japanese vistas in the background. They're just they're they're just throwing all sorts of money at this screen, and it works. It works for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, and the, the whole helicopter fight is. Uh, I think it is funny because that's one of the few places where I was reading they they do uh, they leave Japan for part of this sequence because apparently the Japanese government didn't want them blowing stuff up stuff up over their national parks. Yeah. So uh, so they had to go to Torremolino, Spain for for blowing stuff up. That's fair. But everything else everything else was in Japan for that sequence. So yeah. It reminds me of stuff like in RoboCop, where they had to blow up the Ed 209 somewhere else, because apparently the Texas, I think they shot that scene in Texas or somewhere, and it was a government building, mm-hmm. was the outside of it, and they were going to just blow up a big robot outside there, and someone went in and was like, actually, we'd prefer if you didn't do that, thanks. Uh, so they had to do it somewhere else, or do it with miniatures, I don't remember exactly. Yeah. The Little Nelly sequence, I really like a lot. Um, there are some, I guess you can call them cheesy process shots of, uh, of of Connery obviously is just in a set with a with a with a green screen behind him but uh, no I like the uh, I like him just firing all the rockets and the aerial mines he has to fly he has to fly above a helicopter and he drops like the little I don't know if you ever had like one of those parachute toys which is a soldier attached <laughs> to a parachute but he drops like 50 of those onto a guy and the guy's like yeah. just looking up like what are those <laughs> he hit his helicopter and explodes I feel it's a it's a fair question. That goes back, I feel, to to, uh, to his, his Navy past. I mean, depth charges work in, in, in sea warfare. You drop things over the side, and they sink, and they hit submarines. Yeah. I'm not sure mines work in aerial combat so much. The concept of flying over something, moving very quickly as anything that flies tends to, and dropping them on parachutes. I don't know how that works yeah. as, a, as a thing. But it works, of course, because James Bond is just able to make it work. But yeah, he he kills. Uh, he just dispatches four helicopters in quick succession up there with his. I, and also, I feel like gyrocopter. He launches missiles off, and I'm like, I'm not sure a gyrocopter is going to work well with the recoil of of missile propulsion and so on for the rockets he launches. But it all works out. It's it's obviously Q went through all the details. Uh, one yeah. thing I did notice actually with his um, with, with his his gyrocopter is he has again a camera on his helmet there, which is like the uh, one of the a proto GoPro kind mm. of a setup there. Yeah. Um, one of one of the more believable or normal elements to the film actually, and maybe some account for one reason they have a a flying camera angle. I don't think they ever used that one though. So strange. I don't know what Bond is recording that for. I guess he's doing reconnaissance, so that's why he's why he has a camera to begin with. That's true. Um, I believe he spots the volcano. Uh, at this point, he goes back to Tanaka's uh, manor, and they go to ninja, ninja training they camp. Go to, yeah, they go to ninja training camp, that's right. <laughs> Bond has to undergo a surgery. He has to do two things. He has to undergo a surgery where he becomes Japanese, then he has to marry a Japanese woman. Um, now, uh, are you are you aware? Because I'm, you're leading into this as well. I don't know. Are you aware 
why any of that actually happens within the film. Because it feels to me, the first scene in the film practically is Bond fakes his own death and then they shoot him out of a torpedo tube. I don't know why they didn't just let him out the airlock, but whatever. They shoot him out of a torpedo tube in scuba gear and he swims ashore in Japan and hey presto, he's in Japan. So I don't know why they didn't do something somewhat similar to get him to this island rather than having the whole you've got to become Japanese and marry a Japanese woman seems a little bit involved for my you know (laughs) but I know this is actually taken somewhat from the original novel I guess which is why they included it but kind of a weird overkill there yeah, so I the the I don't know why he has to get married. I think that's just something the producers included to show another bit of Japanese culture. Because I'm sure Britain in the '60s were not familiar with how a Japanese wedding works. But <laughs> the the surgery is beyond bonkers. Uh, it's <laughs> it's mostly just they attach skin flaps under his eyes, so he's got more of a squint, and then they give him this hideous bowl cut, and then. <laughs> they have him hunch over, and then presto, changeo, Sean Connery's I, I, Japanese. I do enjoy that you describe it as a surgery. <laughs> yeah. I feel it's more like a very poor makeup job. It's well, it's like stuff. it's in one of those overt, uh, like uh, elaborate surgical theaters. All of, it is. All of the doctors are girls wearing bikinis. That was an interesting touch from a medical perspective, certainly. That seems unsafe. Yeah, you'd want more clothing to be more hygienic. But, uh, <laughs> I feel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely face of another, this is not. Uh, it's a very, very different facial construction here. What I really enjoyed about this, uh, I mean, yellow face, effectively, this is like John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. It's, it's uh, you know, <laughs> Mickey Rooney playing his, his Asian character in, in Breakfast at Tiffany's. This is just a Mr. terrible... U- Mr. Unioshi. Yeah, it's 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 this is terrible uh, kind of I, like why would you even go like they go out of their way to include it and as you say he doesn't look he doesn't look vaguely Jap or you know Japanese or Asian at all he honestly looks like a, like a beat up Romulan which is kind of which which kind of reasserts to my mind kind of reminded me that honestly Romulans and Star Trek were kind of meant to be Asian people for all like that was kind of one of the takeaways of that uh, you know the way each of those alien races I think represented different nationalities and so you know the stoic uh, kind of mechanical Romulan I feel probably had certain elements of what were perceived to be Asian sensibilities to them and I think that overlays here that honestly Bond could just as easily have stepped onto the USS Enterprise after the surgery as he could have into a remote Japanese fishing village. Yeah, so I've always thought that he looked like a like an aging beetle, but that might just be me. He's got he's, <laughs> no, his teeth are teeth are too good still. Ah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So um, Bond gets married, but then his uh, now here's maybe I wasn't I missed this part, but did he marry Aki or uh, has he married Kissy Suzuki? You know, I'm actually I'm I believe it must be Aki, I think, because they're in that's bed who he ends together. Up, yeah, that's who he ends up sleeping with. Kissy Suzuki sort of trans just appears out of nowhere, honestly, in yeah. this film. It's a little bit confusing, and I know, I'm wondering if maybe this came about from the fact that the actresses swapped roles, if maybe there was some confusion about what had been shot that there, or the introduction of them, because I know... Um, Originally, Akiko Akabayashi, who plays Aki, uh, was going to play Kissy Suzuki, and then uh, Mie Hama was going to play uh, Aki, who was originally called Suki, mm-hmm. which is very confusing. Um, but then um, uh, Wakabayashi had better English, and Aki 
has more English to speak in the film, so she ended up taking that role. And I know that she she requested they change the name from Suki to Aki at this point. Yeah. And I'm do and I cannot help but wonder if she did that uh, to fend off just a hundred dumbass English guys making sucky jokes. I just I feel that could be a thing, and just like change it to Aki. They can't do it anymore. Uh, you know, Suki to Saki, I don't know. Uh, of course, um, you know, Full Metal Jacket hadn't popularized a whole range of hideous <laughs> Asian broad humor at this point yet, but uh, I, I don't know. The James Bond series just suggests to me that's not a that's not a mile away. I don't know. She requested the name be changed, but Miyahama then took over as Kiss Suzuki. They, they she took that role, and yet she just sort of appears out of nowhere when Aki dies. And Aki's death has a very has a very iconic death sequence, um, which has been copied in many films after, where she's asleep in bed with Bond and uh, an assassin is on the rafters and he he hangs a needle down right above. He's intending to kill Bond, and he hangs a, uh, a thread uh, down bl- uh, right above Bond's mouth and then drips poison down along it. So the idea is that it will drip into Bond's mouth, but at the last moment, Bond rolls over in bed, and Aki follows, and the, the poison goes into her mouth and kills her. Bond dispatches the guy on the rafter, but yeah, Aki is just sort of... She's she's given a funeral, I guess, and then next thing you know, Bond's with Kissy Suzuki who's not named once in the film, but she's supposed to be the Bond girl of the movie, even though she shows up really late and doesn't have much to do as the others have. No, she she's somewhat of a quiet Bond girl. And this is where we're talking about kind of the, the quality of the ingredients versus the final product. Yeah. Um, that, like, I still feel like From Russia With Love has the best ingredients, but maybe doesn't make the best final recipe Whereas this has definitely shortcomings. Like Kiss Suzuki's not exactly a, yeah. a memorable, memorable Bond girl. She doesn't say much. She pretty much is just a bikini walking around for a while. Um, but you know everything else works so well. There's so much else of it that's just really genuinely entertaining. Yeah, this is the like the low point of the film for me. Essentially, anything after Little Nelly, all the way up to Bond rediscovering Blofeld's lair, um, the pacing really sort of flags. And and just the the switching of the the girls doesn't doesn't really do much for me, um, and it doesn't help that neither of them as Bond girls are all that memorable. I guess Aki is, but she's killed off too soon. So yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely I think I would agree with you. There's a flag in pacing here, and yeah, I think the the Bond girls are honestly. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like the, the... I don't know if they're trying to play up an Asian stoicism or something, but, like, Aki is very... She's she's very confident and cool as a character in the film and, and kind of well very well collected. She's not a damsel in distress. And if anything, she keeps saving Bond's ass, to be honest. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, but she's she just doesn't have a lot of... There's nothing to really differentiate her or make her stand out. Like, there's nothing... I can't think of a major trait other than the car. Her car is the most notable thing about her. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I do like, though, that they, uh, they note the level of Japanese efficiency amongst the people. Because when Bond goes to the Osado building uh, for his interview, the uh, secretary says, you're three and a half minutes early for your interview, Mr. Uh, Campbell, or whatever his name was. Whatever his fake name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Of course. Let's, uh, so, essentially, Bond, uh, discovers where the, uh, the evil helicopters are coming from. He finds a fake volcano, 
um, which has a, a false opening that he later infiltrates. This is revealed to be Spectre's lair of business, and it's being run by Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Um, uh, number one. Number one. We finally get to see his face, but not before Bond is captured and brought into his office. And he gets the uh, line he introduces himself. Uh, he tells Bond, I bl- thought you were assassinated. And Bond says, uh, yes, this is my second life. And he says, you only live twice, Mr. Bond. Ah, uh, good times. Good t- uh, of t- course, t- that is just that, that that is important to note to people. You do not actually live twice, so uh, do not take life advice from this film. Yeah. Um, well, yes. There is, there is <laughs> of course, You Only Live Once, which is, for anyone who hasn't seen it, is a uh, 30s Fritz Long film, which is pretty much <laughs> like the forerunner to M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, and I fully recommend it. It's a really ridiculous film. That has nothing whatsoever to do with this. But just in case you, if you were to mix them up, it's still worth watching that film. Yeah. Do you think maybe Drake was a Fritz Long fan? Oh, definitely. I think YOLO every time. I just think, yeah, that's about <laughs> the death penalty. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah. The line actually comes from a. The line comes from a poem at the beginning of the novel. It uh, says. Um, you only live twice, once when you're born and once when you stare death in the face. Which I think is really cool. Um, yeah. Anyways. Uh, Bond's captured. We meet Blofeld face-to-face the first time we're seeing him. He's played by Donald Pleasance uh, of... Uh, what's, what's one of my most famous Halloween. for Halloween, of course. Dr. Halloween. Dr. Sam Loomis. Halloween Although two. I feel like Wake and, Wake and Fright is actually probably the scariest film he's ever been in. That but a slightly different tone. Yeah, that's a oh, that's a that's a bloody bloody good film, <laughs> bloody nightmarish too. It is absolutely yeah. terrible. That's that's true. It, honestly, if you think the uh, the institutionalized misogyny of James Bond is bad, uh, take on Wake and Fright and just realize even the film itself realizes it's a self destructive monster that's been created yeah. by having all these men. Uh, yeah, good times. Yeah, if the, and if the death of innocent animals is funny, then Wake and Fright is a scream. Yeah, without the, honestly, Wake and Fright, not to get too off the point, but that's one of the only films I know of where they actually requested the Animal Protection Group, requested they leave in more scenes of animal cruelty to literally highlight how bad kangaroo hunting in the outback had become, that it literally was just barbarism unchecked. And they were like, just leave it in to let people know what's happening. Which is a really, really bad sign. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that movie anyway, is... Anyway, uh, that's a different film a different, that has nothing for a different to do series. with James Bond. When we'll, do, uh, we'll do the Wake and Fright series uh, sometime later. Someday we'll do a shotgun wedding with, uh, with Wake and Fright and Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Boz Lerman film Australia. Oh, yes. All right. Oh, cover all the bases. Yeah. So, uh, Blofeld's in this volcano... Volcan- I keep on a... I don't know if I should call it a volcano lair or a volcanic lair, but he's in a giant lair. It's in a volcano. The set alone cost a million dollars to produce, which is the entire budget of Dr. No. So we've gone yeah, from which- one film to one layer that is made up of the budget of one film. And what's interesting is, honestly, this... And I feel like... Um, I feel like the You Only Live Twice has a lot of Doctor No trappings to it. It, it follows a very similar path. I feel to Doctor No, uh, to the yeah. reclusive base. That's <laughs> what uh, and so on. Yeah, that's what I think Roald Dahl's quoted as saying when he wrote the script is that he just sort of uh, retooled some aspects of Doctor No that worked well and, and gave it the gave it the yeah, flavor of this film. That, 
that sounds for that sounds very likely for yeah. sure. And so it's it's kind of interesting that we go back to this giant layer, and this time the layer, as you say, cost the entirety of Doctor No. But it's almost like a throwback. But it shows how far in just five movies we we've come. We've really you know changed perspective entirely it's a and it's a pretty good layer there's this giant scaffolding system uh it's housing a couple of stolen rockets there's a, mo- yeah, there's a, a monorail. monorail that goes around the perimeter it's filled with uh, henchmen and color-coded uniforms so you have to you have to keep track of them somehow exactly. and of course ken adam ken adam is the uh, the production designer again on this one a uh, bond mainstay um, and award-winning for several other things for Doctor Strange Love and stuff. So I mean, mm-hmm. he's absolutely like absolutely best in the business, and it shows. I mean, it's it's a fantastic set they have here. Yeah, it is. It is something else. And uh, <laughs> all right, so Blofeld's mission is to. Uh, 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 we should mention at this point in the story, a Russian spaceship has since been stolen, and now there's an American spaceship scheduled for launch. Blofeld is going to launch a shuttle to destroy that one, which will lead the Americans to fire all their nuclear weapons at Russia, and most likely vice versa, thus thus irradiating much of the world and and, and leaving both of these. It's a weird plan. It's a strange plan in that, okay, an American thing goes missing. So yeah, so America goes, aha, Russia, you definitely must have stolen it. And then Russia, knowing that an American... Uh, spaceship has just gone missing when one of theirs mysteriously goes missing goes well I guess America's developed the exact same technique we did yeah. uh, to to steal them and then they blame each other for it. see it's a bit of a weird plan yeah with with a with a, a somewhat questionable end but honestly I mean as you say this one is this is very much what Austin Powers based itself off of this the idea of global domination this is Spectre not just exploiting money but effectively ushering in the fall of humanity for their own questionable financial gain yeah alright so uh, let's see here Helga Brandt is dumped in a tank of piranhas for her failure to kill Bond earlier in the film uh, Blofeld, Shame. Yeah, Blofeld's got a henchman named Hans, who you, I think, mentioned <laughs> at the top as a very weak henchman, which is uh, completely fair. He's a he's a he's a clone of Red Grant, and we'll see. It's basically just the the giant blonde muscle. We'll see a few Pretty, more of those. Yeah. Like literally, his only characteristic, I guess you could you could describe him as Teutonic. That's about it. He's yeah. got literally, he's just you, it, like if this movie had been made in the early seventies, Arnold Schwarzenegger could have played him in a wordless role. Like if if Robert Altman hadn't got him for the long goodbye, <laughs> Schwarzenegger could have just slotted straight in here in the same exact role, just as the big dude who doesn't say. I don't think Hans even says a word. I I don't I don't recall if he does. <laughs> Henchmen are either very chatty or they don't say anything. This yeah, that's true. Red Grant was like the chattiest, most refined of the of the lot, and then he this guy's more odd job, but without a cool hat. Yeah, yeah. I like I like it when my uh, when my henchmen are a little gregarious. Yeah, yeah. But uh, before <laughs> uh, so before Blofeld's plan can uh, take effect, uh, Tiger Tanaka, the Bond ally, and all of his army of ninjas swarm the base. And then a whole giant battle between two sides of ninjas takes place. Boy, oh boy, is it something. Where do the ninja like? Because again, I'm thinking Tanaka's a Japanese intelligence agent representative. Mm-hmm. Who, where do the ninjas come from? Who who funds them? What do they What do they do? Are they military 
I like it is just a confusing bureaucratic element of this film that he just has this whole team of ninjas at his disposal. I'm like, who are like are does the government know they have the team of ninjas? Is this something he did on his own time? Like I like to feel that Tanaka just developed this entirely on his own coin. That he just he has a castle and he just got a bunch of ninjas because he thought it would be pretty cool. Oh god, I I'd love to have the money to fund my own ninja army. That would be spectacular. It's, it is the dream for sure. Yeah, so ninjas swarm the base, explosions start going off anywhere, Blofeld hides in his uh, impregnable fort. Now, here's the thing. Blofeld is holding this cat. Through all, all the movies you see Blofeld, <laughs> he, has a, he has this white Persian cat that he's constantly petting. Once the uh, explosions start going off, that cat starts freaking out for dear life, but the actors are playing it off like nothing is happening around them. And there's a one shot in particular of Donald Pleasance pinning the cat to his body as it's struggling to break <laughs> free while he's, med- he's threatening James Bond that he's going to kill him. It is so damn funny. I oh, for sure. <laughs> no, this this is definitely this is up there with the dog pissing in the parade in uh, in which was then the Thunderball. Uh, this is another great animal antics of James Bond. I, Pleasance deserves some kind of, I don't know, it's not necessarily an acting award, for, but just keeping his lines coming while he is clinging the, to this cat. He's like like wrestling it down and it escapes. At first, the first time I watched it, because I actually rewound the film when I was playing this originally, the first time I kind of wasn't paying too much attention to the cat and then I caught a look of the cat just with this grimace on its face as it was escaping. I thought, did they use an animatronic cat for this? Like, that that cat looks weird. And then I rewound and just realized, no, that's just the face of fear. That's, that is a cat that is a very, very unhappy uh, but a great sequence, and, and yeah, Hans and Bond are trying not to notice, and everyone's giving the lines, there's explosions going off, and this cat has got to look like, what the hell are you guys doing? Let's get out of here. Oh, yeah, nobody notices the cat. They don't even, they don't call cut and then try to calm the cat down. They just they just let the cat freak out in its arms while, <laughs> while the mayhem is happening. Uh, all right, so... Anyways, uh, a lot of things happen here with our giant showdown. Bond throws Hans into a piranha tank. Uh, we didn't really elaborate that Blofeld has a piranha tank that he dumps uh, his betrayers into. But uh, he does I, well. I, yeah, I, he's he has his ramp over it, and and yeah, uh, and again, this feels like a Doctor No throwback. The big fish tank, although this time they're weaponized fish. And Thunderball obviously had its its shark mm-hmm. pool as well. It develops it develops a certain uh, maritime threat element uh, that's omnipresent through the Bond series. That water is basically either for fighting or fucking. Uh, I think that's basically what James Bond used it for. Is either it's either great threats there, or it's a place to have boats and a little bit of privacy. Yeah. So, and this isn't like this is also the first of many trends where the uh, the villain has some sort of. Uh, uh, well, no, actually, I guess um, what's his name? Emilio Largo had a tank of sharks. So this is a tank of uh, ill-tempered piranhas, and, and yes, you know, the... they all have some sort of animal uh, held in some tank to just drop a henchman in, or Bond. It's true, it's disappointing. Goldfinger just had horses. <laughs> and they were just horses. Yeah. It's very disappointing. They didn't even try to trample anyone. Yeah, they weren't They weren't ill-tempered in any way, shape, or form, honestly. They were just hanging out in fields. Yeah, so, um... <laughs> uh, Blofeld is uh, wounded before he gets a chance to kill Bond, but he escapes on his little monorail. 
Uh, Bond and Kissy Suzuki flee the uh, exploding volcanic lair, which actually is so powerful it, it causes the volcano to uh, become active and erupt. Which is yes. a pretty nice little optical effect. It's it's a great effect, and I just want to talk about the exploding of the layer because I really there, there's a certain thing where we talk about special effects in films, mm-hmm. and like a lot of people complain when special effects aren't real, mm-hmm. you know, or realistic, or you can see the strings, you know, you can see the, the piece moving. I've never really subscribed to that. I think it's you know the special effects only become bad when the movie around them isn't good that's when you really start to become tired with crappy special effects or with substandard or whatever you know when the movie's supporting it i i really like kind of being able to or i really don't mind when special effects you know show the strings where it's very obvious what they did you know because it falls into the the kind of the school of film as a craft, as an artisanal thing, that you have these people who manufacture elements of it, and it's all kind of put together. It's it's sculpture, effectively. Um, and, you know, I, I like being reminded of that sometimes. I think it's very pleasant. And this explosion, really, I just... There's this great shot. They have a wide shot of the whole base as it explodes. And it's clearly a model. It's a miniature, because they have little bodies uh, all around oh, the yeah. floor. And uh, they're literally, off. I think they, yeah, I think they got like little, uh, I don't know if you have them really in America, but like Sabutio players, so it's like a little soccer game as kids, everyone played it. And it's like the, the you have little figurines, it's like uh, the figurines, they have like a semi-circle at the base, which allows them to balance, and you flick them with your finger, and you, you, you know, kind of have, you play soccer with these little men that you flick around, the little plastic men. It sounds men. like what we would call foosball. Well, it's similar to foosball, but it's it's not you know it's not on the table with Ugh. the you know but but in any case um, the the little bodies look literally like they just sawed the little semicircle off the bottom of a bunch of Sabudio players and just laid them down there and when the whole thing explodes it vibrates a set and all of the bodies just gently bounce upwards and remain completely rigid yeah and it's just, it's it completely it completely ruins the effect in one say in in one. In one perspective, but honestly, for me, I just think it is such a charming element. It really just reminds you of just the ingenuity and the little clever touches and the work that goes into it. That it doesn't bother me at all. But I just thought it was really a really fun little element to see that explosion and the way that they or so that they switched it out to this little miniature for that shot. Jack, you have summed up perfectly how I feel a lot about special <laughs> effects. Uh, if I'm watching like a horror movie. Like, just as an example, you can listen to my discussion with Steve Cuff on uh, the uh, Lucio Fucci's The Beyond. Uh, <laughs> there's a sequence in that film where some spiders tear apart uh, a man as he's lying paralyzed on the ground. And obviously the close-ups of the body being chewed to pieces by the spiders is a dummy. But I find those effects very endearing, and they really genuinely add to the charm of the film. And I like that they went through the trouble to at least, you know, put a uh, like a put together a corpse that is resembles the actor <laughs> some, to some extent, and, and just anything you can you can see that is like tangible and practical on the screen. Yeah. I will I will no matter how quote unquote cheesy it may look, I will always champion that over yeah. over like anything that is computer generated like and i it, the, before the internet attacks me i love these movies that, that i'm i'm about to say but i love i love the raid and john wick but every time somebody is shot and it's a cgi blood wound that shoots out of their eyeball or whatever it, it takes me out of it a little bit and i think it is it's squibs, a little easy. squibs are always the way to go 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and I, I enjoy it. God, that that scene in Foolishy is great. How do spiders chew? How do they? They take such big chunks out. It doesn't make any sense. It's a magical, it, magical film. It, it doesn't matter. It just, it just, it just works. And the fact that, like, it it, when, the, when the when the filmmaker's convinced of it, I I buy into it too. Yeah, and I, I definitely, I think it falls into the concept of film to me as a as a craft as a product it's you know digital is great and it allows for so much more versatility but honestly i would never poo poo these these just great old-fashioned physical practical yeah. effects or, they just, they have such a great presence to them or even even like just the, going back to the opening of you only live twice the the spaceship the the guy mm-hmm. the astronaut whose uh, tow cable is snapped by the closing doors and he's just left astray in space that that like looks terrifying to me because it's it's got a weight to it that uh, like a CGI figure being blown into space would not have the same effect. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a great like and just it's a great sequence that whole exploding thing, the whole storming of the base is probably the biggest action sequence in in James Bond history. I don't know. I guess uh, Gold or Goldfinger has a kind of a big one too, but it's a much more basic. It's a lot more men running and just falling, pretending to be shot. This is a lot more... I mean, the, the rappelling down is, is a remarkable... It kind of reminded me of something like Fritz Lang's Metropolis has that scene. Those amazing scenes where people are dropping down on ropes, these really high jumps, and they're like... They, they're basically going down on a slack rope and just hitting the... the the rope tautens and they drop the rope. They, they kind of let go of the rope to fall. You know, like it's these really high falls. They do a little bit of that when the when the ninjas are rappelling down in yeah. and they're being shot at. So some of them die on the way down. And as they land, they like disengage from the rope and fall, uh, having come down. You know, however, like fifty, a hundred feet. I don't know. I'm very bad at measuring distance on screen. But uh, like it's a, it's just fantastic. There's so much going on. Uh, and I would also say I think Tiger Tanaka kills more people in that sequence than James Bond kills in his entire career. <laughs> Tanaka's just killing people everywhere. Even even Bond seems a little like I always wonder about when like the scene at the Kobe dock. I always wonder about Bond's running around and he's shooting all these guys that are running at him with lead pipes. And I'm just thinking they're just trying to get this intruder out of the base when Bond yeah. is murdering all of them. <laughs> I wonder how the Union feels about that. I don't know. The, yeah, the poster, one of the posters for this movie, I'm looking at it right now, sums up the film perfectly. It's a, it's a shot of the volcanic layer. There's ninjas rappelling down, firing guns at other ninjas rappelling down. There's men on the ground fighting around an exploding rocket. There's helicopters in the sky. And all along, James Bond is walking on the side of the rim of the volcano towards the the audience member, so to speak, posing with his gun. I'll send you a copy of this, but it, just look <laughs> up the poster for this movie. It'll tell you everything you need to know. Sounds sounds good. Yeah. Sounds like, yeah, another candid photo of James Bond just hanging out. Yeah. So uh, the base explodes. Bond escapes with Kissy Suzuki. They're left in a raft at sea. But uh, before they can make love, as you mentioned off mic, Money Penny cock blocks him with a submarine. Cock blocks him with literally the most phallic object in the military ob- arsenal, which <laughs> I think is an amazing touch. That's right. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, and that's uh, that's You Only Live Twice. Let's run some numbers. What do you say? 
Okay, yeah, for for sure. Oh, actually, there was one thing that I, I feel is really interesting to mention because I just think it's a weird uh, throwback in because we we talked previously about Casino Royale, mm-hmm. 1967. Yeah. Woody Allen was in there. Uh, everyone was in there. Was yeah. part of the problem with it. But one of the weird things I found out is uh, that Miyahama and Akiko Wakabayashi, who play the two Bond girls, they appeared in two other films prior to appearing in this film together because they were both actually they were established Japanese film actresses. They had. Uh, solid careers themselves prior to this they weren't like you know fashion models recruited in or anything they were both working studio actresses mm-hmm. um, and Miyahama particularly uh, had over like nearly 80 roles I think in, largely in like science fiction and kaiju movies and so on but you know whatever they're great so you know and I believe she turned down a Hollywood offer at one point which is funny considering her English wasn't very good but I guess you can go a long way in a bikini uh, if that's what they're looking for for their movies but um, uh, her and Wakabayashi appeared in King Kong vs. Godzilla, oh. which I've not seen. Definitely one I need to pick up on. But they also appeared in another movie together, of which I'm not even going to attempt to say the full Japanese title. But I have been reliably informed it translates to International Secret Police, Keys of Ki- Key of Keys, which is a series of films. But what's interesting about that is that that movie was one of the ones that Woody Allen sourced footage from for What's Up Tiger Lily. which was his breakthrough film where he basically took several other films and edited them together and then redubbed the whole thing to create a wacky spy movie. Um, So I think that's just kind of a weird, interesting uh, interlooping of things that uh, Woody Allen had made something of a name for himself in spoofing spy movies and then showed up in Casino Royale, which is a James Bond spoof. Meanwhile, two of the actresses in the same movie released the same year uh, actually have a connection to that. It's effectively, they both also appeared in What's Up Tiger, Lily. Um, interesting. So, yeah, just just a weird thing. It's, it's interesting actually to look at them because I say both of those had very rich careers. Um, this actually was one of the most accomplished casts of a James Bond movie um, because Tiger Tanaka is played by Tetsuo Tanba, yeah. who has an insane acting career. He has over 300 acting credits on IMDb. He worked with Hideo Gosha, Yoji Yamada, Shohei Memura at the beginning. He appeared in Pigs and Battleships, oh, wow. which is really Shohei Memura's first A picture for, uh, I think, Nakatsu. Um, and his first A picture, and which ran over budget, and I believe stopped him from making more A pictures for a while. Uh, I think I can't remember if he went independent right after that. Uh, he will start with Kinji Fukasaku with Takashi Miike. He's been in Happiness the Katakuris. Uh, he worked. He was in Harakiri, the Masaki Kobayashi film, and he was also in the Story of Ricky, which is the most insane Hong Kong movie that everyone needs to see. Oh yeah, Ricky like, O. Yeah, Ricky. He's been in everything. Um, and crazy. even um even Karen Dorr, who plays Helga Brandt, a.k.a. number 11, uh, the other hench girl, she has a really rich career. She was in Hitchcock's Toe Pods, but she was also in a ton of uh, the German crimis, the criminal films, which were kind of a precursor to the giallo movement. They were kind of in the in the kind of early 60s. They were kind of these police procedural murder fests. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of them have really rich careers separate of James Bond. And of course, for a lot of the, the women particularly, they're most famous. And I guess for... for um, for Tamba as well, he's probably they're most known for Bond internationally because most people don't watch foreign films so much. But they all have very rich careers in their own countries, where a lot of you know a lot of the Bond girls are recruited in from fashion um, and from other industries and just kind of take that in and and just have their Bond career and then they they disappear again. 
so uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting element. Uh, nothing, nothing too much else to that, but just yeah, just seek out more of these films. Certainly, if you were to go down and watch all of the films that uh, Tetsuo Tanba's in, you will see a bunch of stone cold masterpieces and the story of Ricky. Interesting, yeah. That's uh, you've basically covered the um, the before they were famous segment of the the series. I know we haven't done that in a bit, but we do got some good ones coming <laughs> up in later true. films. But uh, yeah, wow, that was a very very storied and eccentric career, if there ever was one. There was. There's, yeah. there's a lot of it. All right. Okay. So so numbers. All right. So we we got some good stuff here. Indeed. Um. So we'll we'll talk body count. Very important. Of course. Uh, what this do you got? one. So, so what we got on this one, I count that James Bond killed 20 people in this movie. Seems fair. Which, which, which misses the record, which is Thunderball, which is 21. Mm. But, it is worth, but it's worth noting Thunderball's tally of 21 is a um, higher body count than the first three James Bond movies together. Uh, so this one's very much following a trend of, of a much higher body count than the first three films. So, like He missed it by one. Um, I think I got everything in that. He's uh, he kills a bunch of security guards, a couple of dock workers, kills all the helicopter pilots, throws a few grenades. He kills someone with a shuriken and then dumps Hans in the piranha tank. So all 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 in all comes to only and of course we didn't even mention the guy. He shoots a, a guard with a rocket cigarette. Which is, oh right! What a way to die! Yeah, and that's funny too because at that point he's held captive in uh, Blofeld's office. And, like, of all the guys Bond elects to kill with his rocket cigarette, he just kills a guy who's, like, halfway <laughs> across it, yeah. the office. <laughs> Could have taken Blofeld out. Blow out, out but, uh, yeah. What fun would that be? And that would have caused quite a significant distraction of itself. I guess we'll imagine that Blofeld was sitting behind a bank of computers and didn't have a clear shot. We'll just pretend that was the reason. But, so, so yes, we've got 20, 20 people killed in this. This brings Bond's total body count to 61 people he's killed which is impressive to say the least wow um yeah well well up there um now <clears throat> this is where things get a little bit interesting we're talking about his his sexual encounters here mm-hmm. um because i note here and I, i'm gonna put this down here kissy suzuki is not counted he does not he money penny cock blocks him because uh, she's goddamn hero and he does not. He does not get that. So, so Kizuki is out. However, they still hit a record here, which is that uh, the age difference between Mehama and Sean Connery is thirteen years oh. on around at this point, oh, which is a new record that beats the previous record was with two other uh, women, Daniela Bianchi in uh, From Russia with Love and Molly Peters, who played the physical therapist that Bond kind of rapes in uh, Goldfinger. <laughs> Or in Thunderball, Thunderball yeah. In Thunderball, yeah. They, he, yeah there was a 12, 12 year age difference between between Connery and the actresses playing them. But Miyahama wins. That's thirteen years. That's now the one to beat. That's, uh, um, we'll see. Who however, can talk if you that, yeah. if you think that's bad, Karen Dorr, the actress who plays Helga Brandt, which by the way is only a, an eight year age difference between Connery and her, uh, she uh, in real life apparently lied about her age. Uh, so she could marry at 16 to a man who was 30 years older than her, who was a film director. So basically the whole industry is garbage. <laughs> if you needed any, as if the news headlines weren't proof enough of that, uh, that that's something else that happened. But anyhow, she went on to have a, a rich career and, and lived. She actually, Karen Dorr only died last November. Yeah, it was um, very recent. She was 
very recently. So, and she had, a, as I say, a very full career. It would seem so. I, I, this, uh, I don't different times. Well, I don't know. It's not really an excuse, but nothing we can do about it. We're just keeping score. So uh, Bond sleeps with three women here. Doesn't get kisses Suzuki. That she's the one that got away, and she may honestly be the one that got away for the whole series. It's very unusual. Um, which brings his total uh, sexual partners to 14. Jesus Christ. 14 in five films. Which is, dear God, this is like a Seinfeld episode run amok. I think, uh, actually, you know, the scary thing is Seinfeld and a lot of other sitcoms probably uh, probably puts James Bond's sexual partner count to, to nothing. Um, and the age difference between them, we have a little bit of uh, unknowns here. We have the three women he sleeps with is an Asian massage girl uh, with Tiger Tanaka because Tanaka offers him one because that's not creepy. Uh, probably to diffuse the homoerotic tension between the two and was like, just take that girl, please. Uh, I don't know what I got myself into. Uh, there's Helga Brandt and then there's Aki. Um, so the age difference is there between Helga Brandt uh, with, with Karen Dorr is eight years. Between Akiko Wakabayashi is 11 years, which is not insignificant. Yeah. Uh, she was 20, 26 to Bond's 37. Uh, Karen Dorr was 29. Uh, Miyahama was 24, which gives us a 13-year age difference. Now, there is a question here, which is the Asian massage girls. There's two of them listed in the credits, and I don't know if either of them was actually the actress. But interestingly, one of the Asian uh, massage girls is actually Mai Ling, who was previously in uh, Goldfinger as Mei Lei, the uh, Goldfinger's air stewardess, uh, who air stewardess slash peeping Tom. So she returns in a a completely separate role. Good catch. Um, But if if it's uh, one of the other girls is Yasuko Nagazuma, uh, if it's her... Then that matches the 13-year age difference. It basically broke the record in the worst way possible twice in the same movie. If it's her, if it's Mai Ling, I don't have a date of birth for her. The internet does not apparently know um, in my cursory searches. But anyhow, this is all a very roundabout way of saying three women, 14 sexual partners in total, and we have a new record for the maximum age difference of 13 years. Uh, James Bond at 37 and a Bond girl at 24 which is uh, not illegal, but that's about as positive as we'll come out with that. Um, I feel like uh, if you have to, if you have to clarify it isn't illegal, then you probably should rethink what you're doing. That's fair. All right, uh, I got some uh, some numbers here. Uh, let's see. The film was shot for a budget of ten point three million. Uh, which, if you recall, Casino Royale nineteen sixty seven had a budget of about twelve million. Uh, so oh. came in under under that. It's uh, think think of, and, and so much about more bang for their buck. Yeah, too. Re- really makes you think where all that money went. Um, <laughs> which uh, today's money is equivalent to about a budget of seventy five million dollars. Uh, and as I mentioned, one million dollars nineteen sixty seven was also the same cost of the entire budget of Doctor No, but that was only used for the volcanic lair. This film would go on to make $43 million domestically in 1967, which roughly equates to $315 million today, and it had a total worldwide gross of $111 million, which is adjusted for inflation $819 million in 2018. Damn, that's Jumanji money. That is, it is <laughs> that is the new term, is Jumanji money, when it breaks, when it breaks bank. <laughs> Um, not as much That's... as uh, Thunderball. Uh, an important trend is that this is the first Bond film to perform 
less than its predecessor. Interesting, and yeah. and I feel I wonder was that because Thunderball kind of broke the broke the promise of them keeping getting better. Thunderball felt like the first Bond that was a step back, and yeah, maybe maybe convince people or maybe people a little less excited to head out to theaters for this one. It would have to be, because after Goldfinger, I think everyone wanted to rush out and see James Bond. He was the king of the world. Yeah. Thunderball let some people down, so uh, this obviously would feel like a step backwards. For sure. But, uh, uh, all right. One, one, one other thing that I, I just want to go over briefly, because I sure. thought this was fascinating to, to see, is that the whole Bond franchise, as we know, it could have ended on this movie. Uh, as yeah. we were discussing earlier before we talked about this, that um, Kobe Broccoli, Harry Saltzman, Ken Adam, Louis Gilbert, and Freddie oh, yeah. Young, the cinematographer, were all doing pre-production in Japan, and they were going to fly out, and they delayed, they, they took a different flight, because a, a last-minute ninja demonstration was taking place, which is, mm-hmm. why does that never happen to me? I've never, I've never had to delay a flight <laughs> for a ninja demonstration. But anyway, just what well they did, because the flight that they were due to go on uh, disintegrated in midair due yeah. to severe turbulence. This, this unnerves me slightly, because I started reading into this, and apparently there was nothing particularly unusual about the turbulence. It's just regular turbulence, but for some reason the plane fell apart in midair this time, which is going to fill me with a lot of uh, satisfaction when I get in a plane the next time. Uh, but yeah, the, the plane disintegrated midair, loss, loss of all lives, about 113 people on board. Gosh. If those guys had gotten that gotten on that plane, the entire, base, the head of the whole uh, James Bond Eon production chain would have been cut off. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. And what's even crazier is this was the third fatal plane crash in Tokyo within a month and the last fatal plane crash took place less than 24 hours after this one the plane taxied past the wreckage of the last plane that crashed before taking off and 25 minutes later disintegrating itself which is honestly suggests the world far more treacherous than James Bond to me uh, air travel was a terrifying prospect apparently in the late 60s I don't know that's I, I would have I would have just stayed in Japan, I feel like, at that point. I was like, I'll take a... I'll, I'll let him build a bridge and I'll drive home. But, yeah, can you imagine the entire... The entire... Like, what would have happened? I mean, the the rights would have stayed with our companies, but who could even imagine what would happen to James Bond if Kobe Broccoli and Harry Saltzman were gone? God, I, I don't know. I think they, they probably would have sold some stuff to recoup their losses. But, uh, yeah, that would have been... Uh, that would have been very unfortunate. We would not... We would not be doing this podcast today, let me just say that. Quite quite likely not. We'd have a very different trajectory ahead of us. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, that about does it for this episode of... Uh, I almost called this You Only Pod Twice. Uh, this is for your That's good. Let's, let's, let's change the podcast name retroactively. That's let's, good. Yeah, You Only Pod Twice. <laughs> uh, so I'm on Twitter at Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. You can tweet at me your thoughts there if you like... Uh, if you like the show, give us a give us a five star rating on iTunes and uh, leave a little review, a little positive comment. If there's one thing you like that stuck out to you, just go ahead and name it in that comment. Uh, Jack, where can the people find you? 
I can be found at Real Jack Eason, R E A L J A C K E A S O N yeah. at Twitter.com. Uh, recently, you and I exchanged. Uh, I posted some pictures of the cat trying to escape from Blofeld's grasp. You posted a wonderful GIF. I have a GIF, uh, yeah. Animate Atom animating it. If you if you want to see this gold content, uh, hop on Twitter, track us down, yeah, and uh, leave, leave us a message. Tell us what we're what we're doing right, what we're not doing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And don't don't forget to also uh, go to YouTube. Look up uh, "You Only Live Twice," Kobe Doc. You'll get to watch that wonderful uh, tracking shot from the helicopter. Uh, if you like the show, if you have any suggestions, you can also email us at optimismvaccine at gmail dot com or tweet at us at optimismvaccine. Uh, that about does it for this week's episode. Uh, I've been Jake Tropila, joined it by Jack Eason. Uh, tune in next time. I almost called the podcast the wrong thing again. <laughs> for your ears, Just for your ears only, we will return tune in for whatever. We will return with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> <laughs>